50 years ago today, the inmates at Attica Prison in New York State staged an uprising that shook the country and the world. Shortly after the assassination of legendary Black Panther leader George Jackson by prison guards at San Quentin, Attica prisoners took over the facility, demanding an end to the horrific conditions they were subjected to, including routine beatings and torture at the hands of guards. On September 13, 1971, authorities attacked the prison and carried out the massacre. Forty-three people were shot to death, many more wounded, and hundreds were brutally beaten and tortured on the orders of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. But the legacy of the Attica uprising and the struggle for justice continues to inspire millions today. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, I'm joined by Eugene Perrier. Eugene is the host of the podcast, The Punch-Out on Breakthrough News. He is also the host of the weekly live show, The Freedom Side on Breakthrough News, which airs every Thursday on youtube.com forward slash breakthrough news at 8 p.m. Eastern. Eugene is also the author of an important book on prisons called Shackled and Chained. Eugene, I am so happy you were able to join this conversation on The Real Story on the Socialist Program. Usually on Thursdays, we do a deep dive on a particular topic. And this week, we're going to focus on the Attica Prison Rebellion. If you look at Wikipedia, it's called the Attica Prison Riot which is truly a misnomer, the Attica Prison Rebellion that started today, September 9th, 1971, 50 years ago today, and ended on September 13th, perhaps one of the bloodiest massacres in the United States, at least certainly in recent times. And, you know, you've been following the issue of prisons, the struggles of prisoners. You wrote the really important book, Shackled and Chained, Your book was about the fact that the U.S. has, you know, one out of every four prisoners in the world. Even though the U.S. only has 5% of the population, the U.S. has 2.3 million people incarcerated. At the time of the Attica Prison Rebellion, there were about 50,000 prisoners nationwide in the United States, if you can believe that. Anyway, this was a period, Eugene, where the prisoners were in many ways a reflection of a broader movement going on. I think that's such a good point. And first and foremost, Brian, you know, I'm also really, really grateful to be here. I really appreciate you guys inviting me. And and I'm a big fan of both the real story in particular and the socialist program in general. And this is such an important topic 50 years on from the Attica rebellion. And I think, you know, in many ways, everything you need to know about the Attica rebellion is that this isn't being 
blasted all over the media. They still haven't found a way to sanitize it and to find a way to present it that can strip the truly revolutionary essence of it. And I think that's a super, super important element. And it, you know, in a way, I think it speaks to the whole moment in a really important way. And I think that when we think about Attica, and certainly I'm curious your thoughts about this broader framing as well, Brian, but to me, it seems like we can't sort of pull it out of its context. And to me, maybe that's, I think, the best way to start, you know, our conversation about this today is thinking about this and just doing some, you know, brief research, brushing up and looking at the exact timeline. I mean, between, you know, let's say roughly late summer 1970, all the way to September 13th, 1971. I mean, a tremendous period. I mean, of course, most relevantly, you know, we have the issue of the Soledad brothers being framed for this murder, including George Jackson, whose book Soledad Brother had gone completely, as we'd say these days, gone completely viral all around the world. I mean, it just completely lit up the sky of revolutionary minded people, not revolutionary minded people, just amazed that this piece of just brilliant scholarship and reflection could come out like this. But then, of course, we have the murder of Jonathan Jackson, the brother of George Jackson, in an attempt to liberate the Soledad brothers. You have Angela Davis at the time the Attica prison uprising starts, still on trial. Same H. Rap Brown, now Jamil Al-Amin, a political prisoner right now, was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list because he'd been driven underground after the assassination of two SNCC workers in Cambridge, Maryland. Ralph Featherstone being perhaps the most well-known, but also Che Payne. And, you know, there's all this just massive revolutionary ferment that is happening. All of these bold-faced names that I think people hear now in retrospect, some of whom thankfully are still with us and continue to speak and to be active. But all these things happening all really kind of at one time, all sort of a compressed period. And when you look at that context and think about that context, that's the first thing I really wanted to ask you, Brian, is what is the feeling at that time in the United States in that 1970, 1971 period where it seems for those of us who weren't there looking back that the tide of revolutionary activity was extraordinarily high in the U.S. and around the world. And so, you know, before we get to Attica proper, I was hoping you could just sort of speak to that, to this context. You were there, you were organizing. These were the events that brought you into political activity. Talk a little bit about that period, you know, maybe the year prior to Attica before before we get to some of the particular events there. Sure, that's the most important thing. And it's very hard to capture the feeling and the sentiment and the psychology of that period, you know, from books. Even though I encourage everyone to read books and go to the archives and read the papers, but in a way you kind of had to be there to get a sense of what it was like. I can remember myself, I was the director of a youth ministry at the age of 16, and within a year and a half, that youth ministry in Rochester, New York, we all became Marxists and socialists, and we're looking for a revolutionary organization to join, not because we were ideologically aware of Lenin or Kautsky or Mao, or we just thought, like, revolution is coming, and you have to have an organization a national organization, being like a collective in Rochester isn't enough. So like a lot of other young people our age, people were looking, how can I join a national organization because the revolution's coming? I really felt in 1969, 1970, the year and two years before Attica, that, you know, within two years, the movement, as we called it, the left, the progressive movement, would either be 
the government. We would either take power or we'd be dead, you know, trying to do that. That was the sentiment. And just to wind the clock back, in December 1969, you have the trial of the Chicago 8 or the Chicago 7 after the police mass attack on protesters in Chicago. Bobby Seale was on trial there. In December, Fred Hampton, who was also attending the trial, Fred Hampton, 21 years old, the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, is murdered by the police, the Chicago police under Mayor Daley, and in concert, really directed by the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. So that's December 1969. Seven months later, eight months later, now remember, Fred is 21 years old. He's young. I mean, the thing about what was happening then was everybody was young. Seven, eight months later, Jonathan Jackson, George's brother, who was 17 years old at the time, goes into the Marin County Courthouse and says, freeze, gentlemen, this is it. Revolution demands the freedom for the political prisoners. He takes a judge, a juror, and a prosecutor, the three sort of legs of the criminal justice system. He takes them hostage, and he's sure that since he has hostages, they will be able to escape. He's only 17. He's only 17. And as they're leaving, as they get into a laundry truck, the police just surround the truck and open fire and kill everyone in the van. The only one who survived was Rochelle McGee. Rochelle McGee, who's still in prison today, he's in his 80s, and there's a campaign being waged by a coalition of forces demanding Rochelle be released. So that's August 7th, 1970. Now, that was shocking. I have to tell you, Jonathan Jackson was 17. I was 17. We all identified with what was going on. We wanted Jonathan Jackson to succeed. The bourgeois media characterized him as a terrorist and so on. This mass sentiment for Jonathan Jackson was so powerful. And it was at that time that Angela Davis, a member of the Communist Party, closest personal friend with George Jackson, Jonathan's brother, she's accused by the government, indicted for providing the guns to Jonathan Jackson, and she goes underground. So now Angela's underground. And by the way, it took the FBI a long time to catch her, just like with the East Coast conspiracy to save lives, the Berrigan brothers, the pacifists who were destroying draft files, the FBI couldn't catch them either. Also, in that same time period, Huey Newton gets out of jail and the Black Panther Party holds what's called two constitutional people's conventions, revolutionary constitutional people's conventions, where they call for a new constitution. The first meeting's in Philadelphia. The next meeting is in Washington, D.C. at Howard University. So that's big picture. That's nationally. Huey just gets out of jail, but the Panthers are still on trial all over the place in New Haven, everywhere. 28 Panthers are shot dead by the police as part of FBI's COINTELPRO. So it's this period of extreme repression, extreme resistance. And then you sort of bring the microscope a little closer to New York State. In November 1970, there was a massive rebellion near Attica at Auburn Prison. As a matter of fact, I, at that time, started working with a group called the Prisoner Solidarity Committee to demand freedom for the Auburn Six. So that's November 1970. And those six guys who were personal friends, and when they finally got out, 
They stayed with us. We were comrades. We were sisters and brothers with them. They were framed up because they led a rebellion similar to what happened at Attica, but it only lasted eight hours. Okay, that's November 1970. That's huge in upstate New York. And New York has got Attica and Auburn and all these little white towns, rural. The biggest employer are the prisons, prison guards or other civilians in the prison as a principal part of employment. And a lot of the prisoners are from New York City. So it's like a seven-hour drive. So you take these mainly black and Latino, although there were a lot of white prisoners too, but the black and Latino prisoners from New York City or Rochester or Buffalo taken to Attica in these rural white areas or in Auburn. The Auburn Rebellion like sends shockwaves through the New York prison system. Then on August 21st, 1971, George Jackson is murdered. And now you have Angela on trial for giving guns She was found not guilty, but the charge was that she had provided the weapons to George's younger brother, Jonathan. All of that's happening. George Jackson's murdered by the cops, by the prison guards. The whole country now is on, you know, on edge. Everybody knows something's going to happen. And at that time, the prisoners at Attica, at Auburn, throughout New York State prisons, and throughout prisons all over the country They start to go on hunger strikes in solidarity with George Jackson, who is by far the most prolific, you know, writer and thinker and leader in the movement for prison reform. And he's also a member of the Black Panther Party. So that's the context for what happens September 9th, which is just three weeks or less than three weeks after George Jackson is murdered in California. No, well, thank you for that. I mean, I think this is extraordinarily important for people to understand. I mean, that these are these are not random events, but really an adjunct to the broader moment and current in the country, in the state of New York, in the country of the United States, and in the world in the moment. And as you said, that brings us to early September of 1971. You know, it starts on September 9th, but in relationship to an incident on September 8th, the prisoners in Attica just decide they are not going to take it anymore. And I thought the way you laid it out in terms of the prison was 100% correct. I think it was 54% black. I think when you add in Puerto Ricans, it was like 85% Puerto Rican and black. And every single guard was white. 100% of the guards were white. There's extreme racism in the prison itself, also in the parole system, which, you know, as you know well, and I'm sure we'll talk about was something that the prisoners themselves were raising up. And, you know, criticizing the overall treatment just being brutal on every single level, inadequate, you know, just massive violations of people's rights in terms of the basic living conditions, unsanitary, poor health care. I mean, for people who know mass incarceration now, in many ways, the things you think about when you think about the hellhole that is the U.S. prison system, I mean, these are the things that people are rising up against in Attica and they decided on September 9th they weren't going to take it anymore and that they were going to make some demands and to be heard. So, just to jump right into it, Brian, and I alluded to it, you know, as we started out, you were, in fact, there outside of the prison in Attica. So let me just ask you this initially. How did you hear about what happened in Attica? What brought you there? And what were maybe some of those initial first days of the uprising and rebellion like? Right. So, you know, it was the number one news item, not just in New York State, but all around the country. So, you know, these 1,200 prisoners 
in what was called D Block, which was one of the quadrants at Attica, had seized that block, had taken 10 prison guards hostage in the struggle to take the prison. One prison guard, William Quinn, died from his injuries, but the guards who were taken hostage were secured and they were kept safe, actually. The prisoners had a lot of security. They created checkpoints. They didn't have any firearms, but they used whatever they could, whatever was available to try to secure the D block, the D yard. And that happened on September 9th. And also they had some electronic help. There were some people who were real wizards at electronics, including Sam Melville, who was ultimately executed when the prison was retaken. But Melville was white. He was a radical. He had been arrested for carrying out a series of anti-war bombings of government buildings in 1969, and he was at Attica too. And he was a political person, and he helped with the other comrades and the other leaders in terms of helping to formulate some of the demands. And I think he knew how to do the magic with the electrical gear so that the guards really couldn't come into D-Yard. Anyway, the prison is seized, and it's all like, what's going to happen? Nelson Rockefeller was the governor. Now, Rockefeller, we associate Rockefellers with John D. Rockefeller, you know, the Ludlow Massacre of, you know, striking miners in Colorado in the early part of the 20th century, the great fabulous oil baron, the Rockefeller family. But Nelson Rockefeller was considered the liberal in the Republican Party. He was the liberal wing of the Republican Party. Nixon and Reagan were the right wing. Nelson Rockefeller was the liberal. He was the governor of New York. Another person who's very important in all of this is Russell Oswald, who is the commissioner of prisons in New York State, and who comes in and in the first couple of days does participate in negotiations with the prisoners. So the prison is seized, and one of the leaders of the prison uprising was a 21-year-old man named Elliot James Barkley. People called him L.D. Barkley, and he was brilliant. He was 21. He shouldn't have been in Attica. He was too young when he was put there. He was just weeks from being released. He, too, is executed a few days later when the prison is retaken. Uh, Assemblyman Arthur O.E., famous African-American assemblyman from Buffalo, said L.D. Barkley was definitely alive but wounded, and they summarily executed him in retaliation. Well, his sister lived on the same block that I lived on, on Roar Street in Rochester, New York. And I had been in contact with the Prisoner Solidarity Committee in New York. The prisoners had invited the Prisoner Solidarity Committee and in particular, Tom Soto, who was one of the leaders of the PSC, to come in and be a spokesperson for the prisoners as part of a, an observer's delegation. You know, William Kunstler came in, Arthur O'Eve, Tom Wicker, who was one of the editors of the New York Times. But Tom Soto for the Prisoner Solidarity Committee, Bobby Seale from the Black Panther Party, and the leadership of the Young Lords Party, those three entities from the left were asked by the prisoners to come in. And so Tom Soto went and got into the prison on Friday, September 9th. And he never left, by the way. He only left just moments before the massacre on the 13th. Everybody else was freaking out. And I'll tell you why, because there were a number of close calls. But anyway, I was in touch with the Prisoner Solidarity Committee in New York, and in Buffalo, and they said, we're bringing relatives 
of prisoners in D Yard up to Attica, can you bring folks from Rochester? And I said, yes. So we brought relatives from Rochester and we held a three-day vigil starting late Friday all the way until Sunday night, September 12th. We sat there outside the prison and it was pretty tense. I mean, I have newspaper accounts from there where the families, almost all of whom are black and who are, you know, they come all the way from New York on a bus is organized by the Prisoner Solidarity Committee or from Rochester and Buffalo on car caravans that we had organized. And they were being threatened by the police. The police were pointing their weapons at them. The white, at least the adults in Attica, the white adults were completely racist. And of course, it was their friends and loved ones who were hostage. We did have discussions with some of the white youth in Attica who were kind of more curious. And some of them, after hours of discussion, kind of got it, what was going on, which was pretty interesting as well. But, you know, I arrived early, early Saturday morning in the still darkness and stayed until shortly before the massacre on the 13th with these families. And we were right in front of the prison. So we were surrounded by state troopers, other police agencies, It was a rabid scene. At different points when we thought we were going to be attacked, we were sort of looking out at these farm fields. This is very, very rural. Farm fields to figure out, can we go this way or can we go that way in terms of an escape in the event that we were attacked? So anyway, I was there uh, and stayed there for the duration right up until right before the massacre. When we got word, we knew at that point that the massacre was going to happen. The prisoners didn't know it. Oswald and Rockefeller gave them a final ultimatum, but they decided not to call it an ultimatum so that when the prisoners rejected it, they wouldn't be tipped off that that was going to be the trigger, the catalyzing event for the assault, which in fact it was on Monday, September 13th. And then when the cops came in, Oswald said he felt the way Truman must have felt the day before the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, like Russell Oswald knew exactly what was going to happen, which is the state troopers were going to come in and they were going to start shooting people. They set up gauntlets. They stripped the prisoners naked and they made the prisoners crawl for like hundreds of yards through a gauntlet with state troopers and prison guards on both sides, beating each prisoner as they crawled on their belly. And then the indiscriminate hundreds and hundreds of rounds were fired. The prisoners, again, had no firearms. The guards were so crazy. And the state police of New York were so wild beasts, such pigs, that they shot everybody. They shot the hostages. They killed the hostages. You know, at first, the prison and the state police said, oh, in the retaking of the prison, the prisoners slit the throats of the the hostages. And, And as a result, the first 48 hours after the massacre, as we were organizing protests, the mood, the public mood was one of extreme hostility because they thought the prisoners were animals and savages and they slit the throats of these poor guards. And then the Monroe County coroner that's in Rochester, this hero said, no, those hostages didn't die because their throats were slit. None of their throats were slit. They all died from bullet wounds and the prisoners didn't have any firearms. So then it became clear that this random beastly attack was so indiscriminate that the cops killed their own and the prison guards too. You know, it really, it really is just an unbelievable 
situation. I believe it was the McKay Commission, excuse me, that subsequently looked into it, said it was the bloodiest one-day engagement in the United States since the wars to exterminate the Native Americans. I don't know exactly how they determined that, but I think it gives you a sense of the scale of the brutality that was happening in the prison yard, the murders that were done by these state troopers, these prison guards, this massive military buildup that had been out there. But, you know, it's so interesting to me It seems to really reflect to such a degree the realities of both the limits of capitalism as a system and also the possibilities of working class people. I mean, you mentioned Nelson Rockefeller and I mean, it's so correct. I mean, he's seen as this liberal icon in 1967, you know, he donates $25,000 to SCLC and Martin Luther King when almost all the other liberals were starting to abandon him. He's trying to use civil rights as a wedge issue, but of course rejects amnesty for anyone in Attica saying that it would be a hundred percent against, I think he said American values or something of that nature. But you know, the point, being that will give you some rights, but not real liberation, being really brought into relief. But on the other hand, you mentioned people like L.D. Barkley, others who are in there. And I encourage people who are listening to, if they have the chance to go back and to look at the statements and the demands that were being made, which were not just, I mean, some of them were sort of basic demands, absolutely, about their condition, but that were framed and contextualized in a way that was a deep critique of capitalist society in and of itself and situating their role as prisoners in the broader piece. I mean, part of it in their declaration, I just want to quote from it briefly, many prisoners believe their labor power is being exploited in order for the state to increase its economic power and to continue to expand its correctional industries, which are million dollar complexes, yet they do not develop working skills acceptable for employment in the outside society and would do not pay the prisoner more than the average of 40 cents a day. So, I mean, they're connecting the immediate everyday issues that they're facing as prisoners to the broader issue of the structure of capitalist society, placing themselves within it and placing their revolt, again, going back to this issue of context, back into the issue of the broader context, the revolutionary moment of the times. But I say all that to say, because of course, the way prisoners and incarcerated people are so demonized, no one expects these people to be able to speak so eloquently, to lift up this level of analysis. And so to me, on so many levels, it's indicative of the moment. But I think in many ways, the sort of liberalism of Nelson Rockefeller being aggressively put to the test here with this Attica prison rebellion, because if you claim to be a liberal and for people's rights and so on and so forth, there's no doubt that the civil rights of these incarcerated people in Attica was being brutally violated on a day in, day out basis. So you see liberalism, the the so-called left wing of capitalism being put to the test. And on the other hand, you see the possibility of those who have been left out, locked out, excluded, humiliated for years to rise and to not only analyze the situation and act, but to really be potential rulers of a new society. I mean, there's so much there. I don't know exactly where the question is, but it really does feel that this moment speaks to those two things so clearly in terms of what was happening then, but also how we should look back on it now. Right. I agree. I mean, those prisoners our workers. You know, we in the Prisoner Solidarity Committee said our demand was tear the walls down because, I mean, this was 1970 and 71, tear the walls down. And we also said prisons are concentration camps for the poor. There were no rich people at Attica, none. And New York is where Wall Street is. So, you know, there's a lot of criminality, a lot of theft. And each and every time a banker is caught or a real estate developer, they pay a fine or the company pays a fine, and, you know, they don't go to Attica. Attica's for poor people, and it was like a concentration camp. 
you know, the families that we brought to Auburn, and we were doing this work all over New York State at the time, the families who are predominantly working class, poor people, and predominantly black people from New York City, they'd have to take a bus to Attica. Now, taking a bus to Attica, you take the bus to Binghamton, you then you stop here, you stop there. It's a 13-hour, 12-hour bus ride. And it's expensive if you don't have money. You get in to see your son, your husband, your father. You know how long they let the prisoners visit after these 11-hour bus trips? 15 minutes. 15 minutes. That's what the prisoners got. And then the people would go back to a hotel if they had the money for a hotel, and then they'd get on the bus and they'd go back. Now, this was, you know, this kind of institutionalized racism and brutality. You know, the the Attica prisoners said, we are not beasts and we will not be driven as such. That's what L.D. Barclay said in this eloquent statement. He was so articulate. That's how, even though he was such a kid, really, such a youngster, he was 21 when he was there and murdered at Attica. He was so articulate. He helped frame that and spoke, and everybody watched that on national TV. We are not beasts, and we will not be driven as such. So that's one thing. Secondly, the prisoners were constantly locked down in their cells. They spent routinely, and these were real tiny cells, 16 hours a day in those cages. Again, these are working class people. They were there because they had committed as young people, mainly young people, crimes of survival. But then, as you point out, they also had formed, and this is again a consequence of the Black Liberation Movement, and the Black Liberation Movement merging with the radical left labor movement and socialist movement, they were formulating the demands on a working class basis. So you read from one of their statements. Here's a couple more. Demand number seven. We demand that industries be allowed to enter the institutions and employ inmates to work eight hours a day and fit into the category of workers for scale wages, right? Meaning like normal wages. The working conditions in prisons do not develop working incentives parallel to many jobs in the outside society, and a paroled prisoner faces many contradictions in the job that add to his difficulty in adjusting. These industri- those industries outside who desire to enter prison should be allowed to enter for the purpose of employment placement. Now we have private prisons, right? So this is the way this particular demand morphed. But Demand number eight, which goes with it. You can't separate demand number seven from demand number eight. Demand number eight. We demand that inmates be granted the right to join or form labor unions. Now, what's the whole point of a union and the ability to strike? It means you have the right to withhold your labor, right? When you take away a worker's right, and all these prisoners are workers, when you take away their right to strike, that means they are enslaved, right? But then you go back to the 13th Amendment of the United States, which formally ended slavery or the system of chattel slavery. The 13th Amendment says, section one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So even, Eugene, when the United States was ending slavery, chattel slavery, 
it adopted into its constitution a provision for slavery. I don't think there's any other constitution anywhere in the world that encapsulates the need for or the right of the state to enslave any part of the population. But this is what the Attica prisoners and this is what all prisoners were facing. So their demands are all about, as workers, they demand the right to employment at regular wages, and they demand the right to form unions. Now, the thing that I think is most important that people don't understand is that prison rebellions are always pictured as violent episodes, right? It's usually called a riot, like Attica was called the Attica riot. If you go to Wikipedia, the Attica prison riot. If you have a workforce that does not have the right to strike, doesn't have the right to withhold labor, doesn't have the right to dissent, does not have the right to free speech, but is living in intolerable conditions and conditions that are really like slavery, and they want to protest those conditions, can that protest be anything other than an uprising? Can it be anything other than a rebellion? And that's the issue that I think is so important for the general public to understand. When you're behind the bars, there's a curtain of silence. The rest of the world does not know because you don't have free speech rights. They don't know what's going on behind the curtain of silence, the brutality of it. And when you finally say enough is enough is enough, we're going to do something about it, you are compelled to rise up because you don't have free speech rights. And then the state characterizes you as violent. And, you know, you're criminals anyway. You're violent now, blah, blah, blah. But you must have an uprising if you're a prison movement because you have no recourse. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you referenced earlier that I think is really important was the sort of close calls. I mean, I think that obviously when you look back, it's obvious, you know, I think this is probably true about all history, right? Everything seems more or less inevitable. Like, well, of course it ended up this way. But I mean, talk a little bit about the tension of this period because, you know, there's this massive worldwide attention suddenly placed on this prison. There's this huge military buildup coming from the governor and others, but they can't really move with the free hand because the eyes of the world are now watching. And now we know in retrospect that going through the motions was them going through the motions, but it seems at least... And, you know, perhaps you can clarify a little bit for those of us who weren't there and how it felt. It seems as if at moments it felt that they could massacre at different points as they would and that at other moments it felt like perhaps they would succeed in these negotiations and the pressure and the things that were going on. I mean, it must have been extraordinarily tense, this back and forth, this up and down regarding the negotiations going on over a number of days as the pressure and the outcry and the solidarity with those inside is growing in the U.S. and, and all over the world. Yeah. And the thing is, the outcome was not inevitable. What the prisoners wanted was Rockefeller to come and negotiate with them. And Russell Oswald, the commissioner of prisons, you know, who we personally hold responsible for the murders of these people, he also wanted Rockefeller to come. And Rockefeller said no. He said no, no, no. Like, when you have so many lives in balance and you're the governor, why can't you just come? Why can't you engage in negotiations? But this is, in a way, this is a, an extremely kind of critical turning point for the bourgeoisie in American politics, because during the 1960s, the liberal bourgeoisie was granting concessions to the civil rights movement. 
The prisoners' movement at Attica was just another expression of that civil rights movement, but it had to take the form of an uprising because of the reasons I stated before. So Rockefeller could have been magnanimous. He could have shown up, but he could have said, wow, the conditions really are awful. The prisoners have formulated everything in such an eloquent way. Their demands are obviously not strident. They're not filled with rhetoric. And in fact, Russell Oswald was saying, of your 33 demands, we're willing to grant you 28 of them. But the prisoners said, but we also want general amnesty for the uprising because the only way the demands that you say you're going to concede on, the only way that this is happening is because we engaged in this protest. So now that we've engaged in the protest and you say our demands are just, our 28 demands, then we shouldn't be you know, held criminally culpable for the uprising, right? I mean, that's the logic. And so they demanded amnesty. And that's where Rockefeller said no. And he was the one who planned to carry out the massacre. So in a way, the end of the 60s, in one way, because the liberal bourgeoisie, which had been granting concessions, Johnson had the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the War on Poverty, even Nixon. It was Nixon who was, you know, giving voice to affirmative action, right? That was Richard Nixon. So he's not even the liberal bourgeoisie, but the bourgeoisie generally. So here you have Nelson Rockefeller, instead of having a negotiated end to a struggle, which even the commissioner of prison said was their demands were just and they were going to give them, he wouldn't give them amnesty. Instead, he wanted to kill them. And I think it is a because Rockefeller really is the bourgeoisie. He's not just a politician. I think it was a sign that the bourgeoisie in America was coming. The 60s were ending in a way. So what happened is on the 12th, we're all sitting out in front of the prison. It's getting really tense. And around one o'clock in the afternoon, we start to see all these state troopers, police, National Guard from all over the place. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. They start to line up in columns. And then a helicopter starts to rev up. And, you know, they start to march towards the prison. And then they stop. And all the prisoners are out in D yard. So they amplified sound. They have, you know, the other people who were inside as observers. I mentioned some of them. And at that point, Russell Oswald says, we want to bring this to an end, but in order to bring it to an end, you have to meet three demands. And one of the demands is you have to release the hostages now. And none of this is with the, you know, the agreement to amnesty, that they wouldn't be criminally charged. So I was there listening as the steering committee from the prisoners gets on the microphone. You could, because it's out in a rural area, you could hear this for miles. So the speaker, I can't remember who it was, says, brothers, the government has issued three demands and says that unless we succumb to these three demands, they're going to come in. And now you could see the helicopters up in the sky. The police are lining up. They're getting their rifles ready. They've got shotguns at the ready. I mean, we really think, oh my God, this is it. Now, this is Sunday afternoon, the day before the massacre. And so the steering committee member says, we've done everything up until now democratically. We're going to continue to do this democratically. So we're going to put this to a vote. Demand number one from the government is, and I can't remember what the demand is, how do you vote? Yes or no? And you heard this, no, 
And literally, you could hear it for miles. And then point number two, how do you vote? No. Point number three, no. And then the helicopter comes over D-Yard. And we're watching this thing unfold. And we see the police marching now towards the prison. So the prisoners have just said, no, no, no. They're not going to give in. It looks like there's going to be an attack. Everybody's freaking out. The relatives start weeping. We start to think, how are we going to get out of here? You know, this is going to be like once the shooting starts, you know, the relatives are going to get shot too because they're considered enemies. So it was a moment of extreme panic. And then as the helicopter flew over, there was this huge explosion. And we thought, boom, that's it. It's happening. And then there was just this quiet and nothing happened. And all the police stood down. The helicopter flew away, and nobody knew what was what. And it was so confusing because nothing had changed. The prisoners had, unless we thought, well, did the prisoners just call their bluff? But actually what they were doing was a dress rehearsal for tomorrow, for Monday, for the massacre. So when I talk about close calls, I'm talking specifically about what happened on September 12th because... Whether it was a close call or not, it certainly felt like that to everyone who was there. So what is the scene there on September 13th? By September 13th, we leave. We have gotten word from people inside the Observers Committee. Now that's Arthur O'Eve, Tom Wicker, Tom Soto. Bobby Seale came from the Black Panthers, but he only stayed for a little bit. He made a speech in D-Yard and left. The Young Lords leader, I think, also did not stay. Soto Soto stayed right up until up until Sunday night, and he didn't want to leave. I know people, his friends on the outside, were insisting that he leave because others from the Observers Committee were telling us Rockefeller is definitely not coming. So that could only mean one thing, given the fact that we had just gone through this dress rehearsal for the massacre. So we gave everybody instructions, go back to your city. We got relatives back in cars on buses, they all agreed. We'd go back and we'd start organizing protests because we thought a massacre was gonna come. And sure enough, the next morning it starts, the shooting starts, and that day we had demonstrations all over New York State. I was one of the organizers for the demonstration in, in Rochester, New York. We had 100 people, including 15 family members, relatives there. Of course, they were a mess because we didn't know yet how many were dead, but we knew a lot had been killed. Mass protests in New York City. New York was like, I mean, Stevie Wonder, I mean, every significant black personality in the New York area came and participated and also came to the funerals. And, you know, the funeral that happened the next night in Rochester, you know, funerals or memorial services were being held in black churches everywhere in America, but especially in upstate New York and in New York City. And I can remember the preacher talking and saying to the congregation, said, you know, if they're going to kill us, we're going to stand strong and we're going to meet, you know, an eye for an eye. Are you with me? And people are like, yes. And another inflammatory statement, you know, we're ready to fight. We're ready to die. Are you ready? People say, yes. And then it, by the end, the preacher would say, we're ready to do all this, but not tonight, but not tonight, because everything was about to jump that night. I mean, the tension everywhere was so high 
that different sectors of the black community who, for a variety of reasons, were concerned that if this evolved into a, a nationwide insurrection, which like what happened when Dr. King was killed, you know, where 120 cities burned down overnight, that's how it felt in the day or two after Attica, like that might happen. But as it turned out, there were massive protests, but not you know, the same level of rebellions that took place after Dr. King's killing. I mean, really, 50 years on, I mean, I mentioned this at the outset, but to me, it does seem crucially important to reckon with and to wrestle with why such a, I mean, so many people know about Attica and so many incidents and individuals and people and movements from that time you know, they found ways to sort of strip them of their true essence and turn them into sort of celebratory pieces, but not the Attica Rebellion. And I think that that in and of itself to me says so much about the legacy of Attica in this moment, that it really is something that despite all their money and PR power, the bourgeoisie, the capitalist forces, the elites in America, whatever you want to call them, have not found a way to sanitize and whitewash this and turn this into some sort of, you know, victory for U.S. democracy. I mean, now that being said, of course, many of the things they whitewash weren't that either. But, you know, the inability to even present it that way, I think, speaks so heavily to what this uprising and what this rebellion meant then and what it means for people now. But I'm just wondering in terms of your reflections, having been there and having lived the 50 years since and being here and involved in the struggles of today, what you really think, obviously there are many lessons we can take from all these things, but some of the lessons, some of the top line things that you take away when people say, what is the legacy of the Attica rebellion in 2021? Well, the movement for Attica and support of Attica and support of the Attica brothers, as they were called, continued to grow. And in fact, it got stronger and stronger. It didn't manifest as an insurrection, but the support and sympathy grew, especially as the facts came out. And by 1976, Hugh Carey, who was then governor, he dropped every remaining charge against the prisoners. So while Rockefeller massacred them rather than give them amnesty. Hugh Carey actually carried out the amnesty. You know, what an irony. Instead of doing it before the slaughter, they did it four years later, five years later. And you could see that that's a sign that the movement was strong. If the movement wasn't strong, Hugh Carey would have never, ever, ever done that. You know, I talked to Tom Soto who again was the representative of the Prisoner Solidarity Committee. And Tom, who just passed away last year from cancer and who was living in Puerto Rico at the time, but he was living in New York City at that period. I've talked to him a lot about what happened at Attica. As a matter of fact, in 1979, he and I both went to San Antonio, Texas, and we lived together actually because we were trying to organize mass protests to demand that the Shah of Iran, who had been brought to the United States, that's when the U.S. Embassy and Tehran was seized. We went to San Antonio to where the Shah was, and we tried to organize a mass protest demanding that the Shah be returned for his crimes against the Iranian people to Iran. Anyway, during that time period, I got, you know, we lived together. So I talked to him a lot about what happened. And, you know, for him, it was a life-changing moment. And, you know, we're both socialists, we're both Marxists, we're working together at that time. And, 
the thing that he thought the way Attica should be remembered is the way the movement remembered the Paris Commune. And I thought it was very interesting, and I agree with that point, because in terms of the legacy, the communards in Paris who created what Marx later called the first embryonic worker state, they didn't give up. They did not surrender. When they were given ultimatums, they said no. And, you know, 20,000 communards were probably killed. It was one of the bloodiest massacres in modern European history. And the bourgeoisie, the German and French bourgeoisie, united against the French communards. And the commune was considered at first a terrible, terrible defeat because this wonderful experiment in workers' power was, you know, snuffed out in rivers of blood. But the way it was remembered restored the image of the Paris Commune, that this was a group of workers who preferred to fight and die rather than succumb and surrender. And as a consequence, the workers' movement all over the world emblazoned the Paris Commune on their banners, not remembered as a defeat, but remembered as a, a martyrdom that pointed the way for you know, real struggle and steadfastness. And I think that's how we should remember the Attica uprising. Those prisoners, when they were shouting, no, 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 even though they knew the police were ready to come in and the police had all the guns and they didn't have any firearms, they had just decided we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to stand up and we're going to fight. We don't want to die, but we're prepared to die. And I think it was a proletarian uprising at Attica. It's a working class uprising led by black people, but they brought Puerto Ricans who were 9% or so of the population and the whites. They united the prison population under a black proletarian leadership. And they did what the communards in Paris did. And I think that is how they should be remembered. And if we remember them that way, that's the most important thing because how we remember forms consciousness for the next generations. Well, I mean, truly an amazing story of, of steadfastness. I agree with you 100% there. So much to draw from and be inspired by. Just amazing to hear that history of what it was like there, to put it in the context of such heady times and to be in similar times, at least now, in terms of there being quite a bit of ferment and contradiction and struggle happening, I think really makes this an extraordinarily meaningful anniversary. I mean, 50th anniversaries are always meaningful in commemorating any event, right? But I do think that this comes at a time and, you know, you can never plan it where it really means, to me at least, so much more than just your average 50-year anniversary because it speaks, the example of the Attica Rebellion to me speaks so significantly to what is happening and should be happening now and the fact that there is a renewed and revived movement of incarcerated people who certainly all know about and revere the Attica brothers who are fighting back now all over this country and what's one of the largest movements of incarcerated people fighting back. I mean, as we speak, we are in the jailhouse lawyers speak week of action against mass incarceration and prison slavery. And this is, I think, the second or the third one of them. And the whole reason that it goes until it starts in late August and goes until September 13th is, among other things, to mark the Attica Rebellion and to use that 
moment and that history as a pivot point to push the struggle forward today. So I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you, Brian, and to be able to cover this and to bring to those who don't know something of what took place there at Attica. And again, I'll just urge folks who maybe don't know as much, go back, read, look, especially what the prisoners were saying and doing. Uh, Just truly inspirational. Yeah. And the final word from me, Eugene, is that the struggle to free Rochelle McGee, that's happening right now. People are, you know, demanding that he be set free. He's in his 80s. I mean, this was 50 years ago, and the man had already been in prison most of his life. Same thing that happened to George Jackson. He had been in prison almost his whole mature life since he was a teenager. And there's so many other political prisoners, Leonard Peltier, Mumia. I mean, we could spend quite a while listing them. And the bourgeoisie doesn't want us to remember what happened in 1968 1969, 1970, 71, during this revolutionary wave. And, you know, it's so interesting that Black August is now a thing in the United States. Well, Black August is, you know, George Jackson and the rest of what happened in August. But sort of the cap of it, even though it's not in August, of course, is the Attica Rebellion and ultimately the Attica Massacre. So here we are 50 years later. It's up to us to keep the memory of what happened and also to keep the correct perspective that this was a revolutionary group of people trying to get justice, using revolutionary means, not because they necessarily wanted to, but they were the only means available, the only means available to sound the alarm of what was going on behind the walls. And finally, the prison struggle in America always has been an extension of the larger movement outside, meaning the struggle for liberation, the struggle for freedom, the struggle for equality. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you, Eugene, for joining us on this 50th anniversary to mark the and remember the Attica brothers and the massacre that was committed against them and the memory of their steadfast struggle. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.